Okay, welcome everybody. We're, what we're going to try to do tonight, we're going to try to do a power, power run through Hilchas Nida. See how much we can cover in one hour or less <laughs> uh, of, of all of Hilchas Nida. <clears throat> so, we're obviously not going to be going into any area in depth. I've done that in previous years. Last year we went into how one becomes a need in depth. Previous years we went into Archakis and Vestas. And this year I just want to try to give an overview of the whole thing. <clears throat> As uh, we have in the past, I wanted to start, speak a little bit about Shalom Bayes. It's always good to speak about that a little bit. Um, interesting thing to think about is that <clears throat> when Adam Arishan was created, so he's the Adam Hashalom, right? The perfect human being. Adam Rishon was created perfect. Until he did the Avera of Etzadas, his he didn't do it. He hadn't done any Averas yet. He was totally perfect in every way. We just learned in Dafa Shavuot. He was as high as the sky, as long as great as the world. He had he possessed grace, greatness in every angle possible. Yet, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, Adam, Adam It's not good for a person to be alone. He has to have a wife. Which means that you can be the most perfect human being as far as HaKadosh Baruch Hu's creation is concerned of a human being. You have every aspect of perfection from your own perspective, but you're not perfect. You're Loi Toif. You're not good. And that perfection can only be reached with, with, uh, with a wife. And that's something to think about. That means that ultimate perfection, right? The, the most perfect of possible perfection. The greatest level a person can achieve in the world, right? You'd think, if I could get to the level of Adam Rish and Kaidim Achet, that's pretty good, right? <laughs> that's got to be, you, you've, you've reached, you know, end game. Uh, but you've not. Because Adam Rishon Kaidim Achet was not perfect because he needed to have his wife to perfect him. And that, by definition, means what does it mean that we need a wife to perfect us? Well, I think we know what that means. <laughs> that means, our means are Shalom Bayes. That means are Shalom Bayes, and that, that's what it means. So if, if we're understanding that in the creation of a person, when a person was created with the total perfection, the world was everywhere it was where it was meant to be. And with all that, that perfection can only be reached together with a wife. That means our avoda with our wives is a lifelong avoda. At any point when a person thinks, okay, Shalom Bayes, I have that. <laughs> that's, that's good. I'm, that, I'm done. That means we're, we're have, you don't really understand what you need to be doing then. We don't really understand what it is that our job is here. There's an element of perfection that can only be achieved with a wife, and if you haven't yet reached the level of Adam Rish and Kaidim Hachet, then you haven't yet reached the level of perfection with your wife as well. So we can be comfortable knowing that we haven't, and we have a lot to work on. And it's just, just to think of what level of, of, of greatness is inherent in our Avaidah of Shalom Bayes. Now, just to. Just to give ourselves a measuring stick. 
we all know that if we have Shalom bias, we're happy. And if we don't have Shalom bias, we're not happy. And no amount of any other thing is going to make us happy. If we lack Shalom bias, we just feel empty and unfulfilled. And, and despondent. And we can have success in business, we can have success in Ruchnia, success in learning, and success in everything else in our lives. But if there's no Shalom bias, we don't have a life. And it's like that because it's meant to be like that, because that is the point of everything, is to reach that level of perfection to a man with his wife. That's, that's how much Simas Leiv it requires of us. That's how much how important it is for us to put all our effort into it, and that's why it is so worthwhile on a very simple level. The more we invest in it, the more we get out of it. On a more practical level, one thing that uh, I think coming across again and again is... The concept, it's a very, really very, very simple concept. And all, all Shalom Bayes concepts really are very simple concepts. That's the truth. It's just a question of being honest with ourselves. Whatever a person has in his heart will be reflected in, in his voice. Whatever a person is thinking is going to come out. And it can be conscious or subconscious. If you have, if a person in his heart is thinking one thing, it doesn't matter how he phrases it to his wife, it doesn't matter how he presents it. What's in your heart is going to come out in your voice. And you can't really control that (laughs) as much as you try. Unless you're a very successful, very professional liar, then you might have another problem. (laughs) But the, you know, for us typical people, it's not possible. And just to give you an example, if you feel that something is coming to you, if you feel that you have the right to something, as much as you try to rephrase it as a request, as much as you try to phrase it properly with a please and everything, that's not what the other person is going to hear. They're going to hear a demand <laughs> because that's in your heart. If you feel the other person is wrong. If you feel that the other person is not just wrong, but was what was was wrong to the level of where they they actively hurt you. No matter how you try to phrase that conversation, no matter, no matter how you try to approach that conversation, it's going to come out like an attack because you've already decided in your mind that the other person has no position to, to defend themselves. So no matter how you try it, and you wonder that, you know, oh my gosh, I can never give any criticism, I can never say anything, so I just get so upset, it's because... It always, if that's what's in your head and that's what's in your heart, it's going to come out like an attack and then, that, then the other person will get defensive. That's just a fact. So, like everything, 
to when you see when you're having a conversation, when you're having a back and forth, and you're seeing both in yourself and in your spouse that it's causing you to become defensive or causing your spouse to become defensive. You need to take a step back and reframe and say, well, I'm doing something wrong because it's not what should happen. It should, the person should not become defensive. If, if it's approached honestly and an open conversation, an open discussion, without an attack, without each side deciding from before the beginning already what the end product of this discussion should be, there will be very little defensiveness. And if there is, and if you see those emotions rising, and the t- then you need to stop and say, okay, we have to stop and rethink this. And be honest with yourself, and we're honest with ourselves, and we'll see where, what was really in our heart when we were talking. We can identify it and then re- and start over again and it'll have a whole different outcome. The core of this really is, now this is like, um, I, I, I was talking to someone who was going to a, um, a uh, through, through a social work, you know, course. And there's like, there's always every couple of years there's a new term that becomes like a very popular term. <laughs> you know, in, in, in psychology or in, in social work and therapy. And lately there's, I think, the, the more, it's become more popular, maybe this is already an old thing by now, but there's the concept of vulnerability, which is uh, loosely translated, we would call it anava to a certain extent. But what vulnerability means is like this. When you're talking, to just, just to give an example, which is rel- relevant to what we're talking about here, is that when you're talking with someone, you're trying to have a conversation with someone else, and it's a very sensitive conversation. You're trying to demonstrate to the other person something that you feel was wrong, that you've been wronged. You were insulted, you were ignored, you were slighted, whatever it may have, whatever the issue may be. And there's two ways that this can be approached. You can lay blame because you did something wrong, and this is what you did wrong. And that's the natural way to approach it because that's a very easy way to approach it. It's, very, it's much easier for us to approach things that way, that you were wrong, you did something wrong. This is all on your doorstep. You need to deal with this. Versus the, uh, the correct way to approach it is, is from a relationship angle, and that is that I love you, and this affected me. I value this relationship very much and I was hurt. And that makes me feel sad, uncomfortable, hurt, and and I want to be able to get past that because I value this relationship very much. You've changed the whole nature of your approach. You're not blaming the other person, you're not attacking the other person, you're talking about yourself. But you're talking about yourself in a very vulnerable way. You're being moide that you need the other person. You're communicating how the important the other person is to you, how important your wife is to you, how important that relationship is to you, and how much you need her. And that takes a lot of anivus. And that's hard to do. We would prefer not to have to do that. But that's the core of the relationship, is that admission of how much I need you. And when any discussion begins that way, it can't get defensive. By definition, it can't get defensive. It can't. 
You're not attacking, you're not laying blame. You're talking about yourself. And you're talking about what, what you feel. And now you, you're asking for help. I don't want to feel like this. So, I, I think the level of defensiveness, the level of, of the reaction is all contingent on exactly how much of that you're willing to do. <laughs> how much of that kind of honesty you're willing to put on the table and say, I, I need you, I need this relationship. I love you and I can't, I can't, this is hurting me. And as much of the, whatever statement or whatever, whatever you say in your conversation is, no, no, you did something wrong, you did that, and that's wrong, then you're going to get that kind of reaction, a defensive reaction. And that is, when we look at it in the bigger picture, it's, it's clearly what HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants from us. <laughs> that's the kind of anivus he wants from us. He wants us to be able to reduce the anarchias as much as possible. And it's very interesting because you end up talking about yourself more than you're talking about the other person, but yet it's that kind of talking about yourself that's at the core of anava. It's the real honesty where a person realizes how much he needs outside himself. That's what Hashem wants from us because that's how we can realize how much we need Hashem, how, much, how, much, how lacking we are and we need fulfillment from our wives and from HaKadosh Baruch So that's the point, a very central point that I've been thinking about a lot recently. So I just wanted to, I wanted to share that as far as Shalom Bias goes. Okay, <clears throat> so, so whoever wasn't here for the first couple of minutes, we're going to try to do a power run through Hilchas Nida, see if we can cover all the halachas. So I would typically divide Hilchas Nida into four categories. Number one is how does a woman become a Nida? Number two is what's the process of Tahara? How to get out of being a Nida? Number three is what are the halachas while you're Tameh, which is Harchakis? And number four is what are halachas when you're Tahar, which are Vestas? Those are the four categories, and we're going to try to break them down one by one. So let's start with how does a woman become a Nida? So we all know that typically, I mean, first let's start, what does the Torah say? The Torah says a woman becomes a Nida when she sees Dam Bahargasha. Dam Bahargasha means that a woman as dam comes out of the makara, comes out of, out, of, out of the uterine blood, and it comes with a hargasha, which comes with a sensation. What exactly is that sensation? Nobody really knows. That's the truth. But what we can speculate is that it's a, it's a, feel, it's a feeling of pain, it's a pressure, all kinds of different theories, what it might feel like. Bottom line is, definitely, Eretz Yisrael, a little bit more machmer with that, but over here in America, for the most part, you tell a rav that you had hargasha, and say, you don't know what you're talking about, you didn't. So that's, that's going to be the, the, the general approach because most, most, almost always women don't have hargasha. They feel wetness, they feel coming out, but that's not hargasha. Hargasha has to be before it comes out. Hargasha is in the body. So, uh, the, the, that, so basically, if the Torah says you only become a anida mida iraisa when you have dam hargasha, dam comes out and you feel it, so how does a woman ever become anida mida iraisa today? So the answer is that there's another thing which the Pais can talk about. Either this other thing is a situation where we assume a hargasha happened or we can, it's, it's equal to hargasha and that's a period which is a flow. It comes at the right time of the month and there's this, a copious amount of blood, enough to designate it as a flow. That's also considered a derisa. Now the relevance of that being a derisa is extremely important because as we know in Durabanans there are all kinds of conditions to become Tameh. 
It has to be on a Dabramakabal Tama, it has to be on white, and etc. All these different conditions. When something is a, t- a question of Tuma Minhatoira, then none of those conditions apply. So if a woman sees a huge amount of blood, but if it was on colored underwear or on a Dabra Shaina Makabal Tuma, that won't make a difference because being that it's a huge amount, once it's a large amount, then it's a flow, and if it's a flow, then it's considered a derisa. We consider either we assume it came with a hargasha or it's equal to hargasha. So a woman becomes a derisa. The primary way that a woman will become a, a, a uh, nida nowadays is with her period or something that's equivalent to a period. Now, now women don't always get a period. Sometimes they're uh, you're nursing or it could even be during a pregnancy, and at that point it's not really a period, but it's a large amount of blood. So it doesn't have to be a period per se, but a large amount of blood. Now what exactly qualifies as a large amount of blood? Here also, nobody really knows. But we know what, at, well, at some point we know for sure it is, and then in somewhere in the middle, you know, we start being machmir. Um, if it's a, a couple of rules of thumb is like this. If it's, let's say, throughout the day, it's going on a regular basis. So maybe it's not so much, but it's just constantly coming throughout the day, so that's a flow, even if it's not so much. Another way is that if it's, if it's a serious enough that it requires you, requires the woman to be changing her, her pad or her, her liner throughout the day, you know, that it, it actually requires that because they get filled up, that also is sufficient to be considered a flow. Where it becomes a question, where that's not the case. You could have one line, or then it was just like a one-shot deal, and a lot came out, and then it becomes a question how exactly to evaluate that. Is that enough or not? And that's going to, that has to be decided on a case-to-case basis. This has become much more of a prevalent shiloh, and uh, it's giving a lot of women anxiety with certain kinds of birth control that have become more popular now. Um, IUD to name one of them where it messes around with a person's period it affects everybody differently and some people the way they're affected is that basically it, it, all their periods are just like that they don't have any normal periods anymore and all they have is every month they have you know, some, sometimes a little bit more sometimes a little bit less very erratic and basically every month they have to be in touch with a Rav to figure out is this a Nida or is this not a Nida so th- it, it becomes very relevant but anyway that's the way you can become a Nida Midaraisa now, there's an additional way a woman could become a Nida Midaraisa, and that is that Chazal were Choshish for Hagasha. And at any time something is inserted inside the Rechem, so then the Chazal said perhaps there was a Hargasha, and the fact that something else was there covered it up, so you didn't realize that a Hargasha happened. Now, you might think, hey, we just said that if you tell me you had Hargasha, I'm going to say you don't know what you're talking about. So why should we start worrying that maybe you had a Hargasha without realizing it? But that has to do, you have to learn the sugi a little bit, it has to do with chazakas, there's a certain chazaka that we make that the dam came out, or probably came out in a way that made you tame. Needless to say, from a halachic perspective, that's the way it works. So if, if something is inserted into the rechem, let's say the classic, obviously, is a bedika, right? So if a woman puts a bedika cloth, being that it was in the rechem, and then a dot, even a tiny dot of dam is on that bedika cloth, a dot of red blood is on that bedika cloth, is going to be tameh, even though it might not be a double mekabal tameh, it, we don't care what color it is, it doesn't make any difference. It was something that was inside the rechem that was make, make, covered up the possible feeling of a hargasha, and therefore that's why that's tameh without any of the conditions. There's no grist, there's no shiurim, none of those conditions apply. If there's anything on the bedika cloth, it's going to be a problem. 
Now, that's not the only thing that gets inserted into a woman's rechem. So when you go to a doctor's office, when a doctor does an examination, his glove goes inside. He can put instruments inside, uh, internal ultrasound. All those things are things which are, are inserted into the rechem. So if anything will be on them, if there will be any blood on any of those instruments or on the doctor, or in specular with the doctor's hand, uh, glove, it's going to be an, a problem, even a tiny drat. So you're not obligated to look. That's important to realize. You're not obligated to look. And actually, this is one of the good situa- situations where I would firmly advise people, don't look, because it's very difficult to, to determine afterwards. Because once uh, the doctor takes it off, he cleans it off, he puts it on his glove, you have to look at the glove. It, it, it's, it's very hard to tell. Even if you're middle of Shiva Nikim, you're not obligated to look. So that is actually the one situation where the best advice for a woman is let the doctor do his thing, try not to see. Now, if you do happen, which happens, sometimes you do see, sometimes the doctor will tell you, oh, look, wow, there's some blood here. And it has happened, which is not, you know, unwelcome information. But if he tells you that, so then uh, you have to look, you have to ask him to see it. And really what you have to do then is you have to ask the doctor a question. You have to ask him, do you think that's uterine blood? Or do you think that you touched the cervix. That's, that's the question you have to ask. You have to remember this question because any other question, is the, the answer won't be helpful. This is the only question that's a, that gives you a helpful answer. You want to know, is this blood, is it come from the uterus? Is it damnida or is it damaka? The way it's damaka from a, a wound is if he touched the cervix. And he'll, he'll know what you're talking about, but you have, to, you have to make sure you ask him the right question so you can get the correct answer. So if you ever have that situation, where you find, there is some dam on an instrument or on a glove, that's the question you have to ask the doctor. Did you touch the cervix or is this uterine blood? And then he'll hopefully answer you and you can trust him. <coughs> so, again, how a woman becomes uh, a nida midaraisa is through, either through her period or through this kind of uh, insertion, either a bedika cloth or any other instrument will make her a nida minater. Now, what is... Nidim uh, Rabbanan is any blood that comes with Hagasha, and then we have five conditions in order for it to be a problem. Condition number one, it's, uh, it's not limited to Ksamim, uh, but condition number one is it has to be red. It has to be red. Now, red means red, and there is a Messiah exactly what we consider red. Brown is not red. Just because something comes out of the Rechem doesn't mean it's blood. There are as many other things that are there. There's mucus, there's other kinds of secretions. So just because it came out, just because it's colorful, doesn't mean it's red. It has to be red to be a problem, and that's why you need to show it to Rav to ascertain that it is a problem. Very often people are very surprised that it's not a problem. So number one, it has to be red. Number two, as we all know, there's a shear. There has to be a certain amount, and this, the amount that's a problem is the size of a penny, <coughs> and... Uh, it has to be in one spot. Now, a lot of times with the kesem, it can be spread out. It's not in a nice, neat little circle, so it's a little hard to tell. And also, there can be a, a couple of spots, and they can be connected through other colors. So all those things are shyless. When you do connect them, when you don't connect them, if they're totally separate, then you don't connect them. Um, uh, but otherwise, you know, then it has to, again, has to be shown to a rough. So the shear is a penny. Number three is it has to be an Adabraham Makabal What is Adabraham Makabal Tumma? So obviously, underwear is Adabraham Makabal Tumma. Your linen is Adabraham Makabal Tumma. What is not Adabraham Makabal Tumma? A toilet is not Adabraham Makabal Tumma. The toilet bowl is Adabraham Makabal Tumma. The toilet water is a Machlaikis. Usually, we have other Tsirufim, and we could be makal by toilet water. Um, but the most relevant thing, which is not makabal is tissues. Tissues are not makabal So if there's dam on tissues, it is a kesem 
as long, again, there's not too much. But the fact alone that you found some dam on a tissue is generally will not be a problem because tissues are not macabre tumma. Pads and uh, liners, some pious given that it hold it is macabre tumma. I go, my father in law and others, uh, for Moshe held like this, that is not macabre tumma. So on a pad or on a liner as well, we can consider it a dabrish and a macabre tumma, and it, wouldn't be a, it would only be a kesem, and it wouldn't be a problem. Only if someone actually inserted it. Typically, wiping is should not be. Fine. So number three is never macabre Number four, it has to be white. It has to be on something which is white in order to be a problem. It can't be on colored. Uh, and that's why when you're not doing Shiva Nikiyam, we specifically make sure that everything we have is colored, the underwear is colored, and the sheets are colored so that we don't run into problems. Colored needs to be colored. It has to be a solid color. Off-white, not good. Needs to be a solid color. Stripes, no good. If you look many underwear in the crotch, it seems like it's gray. You look at it closely, it's not. It's striped. It's white and black and white and black. And if there's a kesem on the white and black and white and black, so exactly half of that kesem is a problem. <laughs> so if it's a double shear, then it's going to you'll have a shear of a problem. And so that's it's good to avoid. I had this once when I was in Lakewood, uh, way back. Uh, Taka had on the. It wasn't. It wasn't. I'm sorry. It wasn't even on. It wasn't even on the underwear, it was on the, the, the tights. And also on the crotch, it looks great, and it, was, it was headlines. And I brought it to the Rav, and he, was, he had his pennies and his everything, and he, but he was makele, and then he suggested that use a magic marker and color them in. So you can, you can take that approach. So I'm just saying this, that it's important that it should be, everything you have should be colored so that you avoid these issues. And lastly, the last condition, which isn't so relevant nowadays, but it's extensively addressed in the simon and that talks about it, is that there, there can't be any other possible place this blood could have come from. So in Hilchus Nida and Shulchan Aruch, it talks about the butchers and other women and all kinds of other things which are 99% not relevant today. But if a woman does have a cut, if a woman does have any kind of maca, any other way that this blood could have possibly gotten there, and certainly if it possibly is not clean underwear, so it was already there from before, then certainly it's, uh, it's a tliya, and that's another thing that you can be semachan with a kesem, because a kesem is only drabbanan. And since it's only drabbanan, we're very makel with it. And Chazal it's instituted these five kulis, that unless you meet all these five conditions, it's not going to be tamit. Likewise, suffix kesem is tahar, okay? So that means is practical application if a woman had a kesem on her underwear and then it got thrown into the wash and it got washed out. So now you don't have it anymore. So you, you ask a rub, he'll try to you know, get a little idea of whether it was really a suffolk or not, but if it's actually a question, we're going to be makel. But if you leave your badika cloths on the, the counter in your, bath, in your bathroom and the gaita throws it in the garbage, something which happens kind of often, that's a suffolk on a badika. Suffolk on a badika is a question of a deraisa and that we're going to be machmiran. So that's, oh, that's a very important distinction. Anything which is a question of deraisa, if you, have a, if you have a liner that has a lot of blood on it and you're not sure if it's enough to be deraisa, if that gets lost, it's going to be a question of deraisa. We're going to have to be machmer. If an if a underwear gets lost, that's going to be only a question of derabonan, and we're going to be mekel. Um, last point I want to make is that when, when um, people bring uh, underwear for a shiloh, uh, there are a... A group of people that, that bring it and they cut it, so they just cut out the little thing and, or, or other kinds of different ways of mutilating it. Uh, there's no need to do that. <laughs> that's uh, that's Baltashkas. 
uh, you can either, you know, uh, you know, I'm serious. You can either, you know, leave it in, and then I'll leave it for to be picked up, which that would do, it's easy enough to do. Uh, also, which I suggest often is that you can use liners. That's really fine. You can use liners, and this way you just have to bring in the liner for the shiloh. That saves saves you that trouble. And we have also the additional, you know, tziruf then that is not a makabel tumah. So you can you can utilize any one of these approaches. But definitely don't, no reason to mutilate underwear. <clears throat> so, th- that's, uh, that basically is the, summarizes what we need to know about how a woman becomes a nita. So let's move on now to the tahara process. So what is the, what is the process of tahara? So there's, uh, there's about five steps, I would say, to the process of tahara, right? So once, as soon as a woman becomes a nida, so we know you have to have a five-day hefsik from, from when you were mutter till when you can start your shiva nikiyah. And this is always important to remember because there are people that tend to get confused about this. The five-day separation, the five-day uh, waiting period before you can start your shiva nikiyah only is if there was a zman heter before. Because the reason that we need these five days is that there shouldn't be any paleta shechvazara issue. So it's only if you were mutter before. Doesn't mean make a difference if you're actually intimate or not, because we say like plug, but you do have to, it has to have been that you were mutter. So if a, if a woman, uh, let's say, uh, you know, was usher for another reason, she was usher, and, and then, and then if the Shivnikim got bad, and then they didn't even try for a long time, and now she wants to start Shivnikim again, you don't have to wait, another, you never have to wait another five days. You only, the five days only has to be from when the very last time you were mutter. And if the very last time you were mutter was two weeks ago, so you don't, there's no, no need anymore for the five days. So the five days is just there to separate Zman Heter from Shivnikim. You can't begin Shivnikim within five days of when you were last mutter. That's the, the rationale over here. So number, the first thing you have to do is wait five days. Go ahead. What if mutter but separate? Okay, so now, it, it, if you were just separate by choice, because, you know, even if you're out of town, so that we say like plug. Uh, if the reason why you were separate is because of iser, so then it becomes a question. Now, there's different kinds of iser why a person could be separate. It could have been Yom Kippur. It could have been Tishabav, It could have been a vest. Those are all shilas, and should it come up, we can discuss them each. You know, there's different serufim, it's machalik sapaiskim and those. One thing you could, though, uh, use as the five days, if the reason why you were separate is because you thought you were a need. So let's say, or you're worried that you were a need. So if, let's say, you had staining, right, and you had shilas, and you didn't get a chance to go to the rub, and basically you separated. So you separated, even if you didn't keep a chakas, but you separated, you separated from intimacy. So you separated from intimacy for two days, and then you went to the Rav, and the Rav said, no, it's okay. But by that time, it was moot. You got, got your period anyway. But you, in, in practice, you were actually separate for two days because you thought you were a Nida. That actually does count. That can be used towards the five days because you were separate. Machmas Isser, you were separate because of the, the Chashash of Isser Nida. And that was actually the Halacha. You had to be separate because you had a, a Safik and a Deraisa. So you were, you were required to be separate because of Nida. You could count that for the five days. So the first thing you have to do is count the five days. How do we count these five days? It doesn't have to be five full days. Uh, the first day is whatever is left of the day. So even if you got your period 10 minutes before Shkia, that counts as the first day. If it's after Shkia, you have to ask a child. That depends how much after Shkia, you know, whether we can count that as a day or not. But definitely, whatever little bit it is before Shkia counts as day one, and then you have to have another four days besides that. So that's step one of Tahara is you have to have these five days. Next. 
Next is going to be the Hefzik Tyra. But in preparation for the Hefzik Tyra, you have to do something called a Rechitza. This Rechitza is not ma'akev. You can do a Hefzik Tyra without a Rechitza. But L'Chadchili, you're supposed to do a Rechitza. And little known and little practiced is that a Rechitza is supposed to be, if you can, something serious, like to take a shower. Usually not done for the very simple reason, because... Generally, it's the middle of the day, and you don't have the liberty of taking a shower in the middle of the day to be able to do your hafsik tahara. So therefore, if you can't do that, that's, I wouldn't even say that's al-chathchila. That's more like the right thing to do kind of thing. It's not like, uh, it's a level above al-chathchila. It's, it's a nice thing to do. It's what's suggested in, in Shulchan Aruch that you should do. Is you, should take a, you should take a shower if you can. So if that works, then do that. Otherwise, the rechitza typically is you just wash around Aysimachim you know, with, with whatever you have at hand. If you can, great. And if you can't, like you're at work or you're in the zoo and it's a Chalmai trip, so then none of those things are ma'akiv. And the only thing that's really ma'akiv is the bedika, which is the hefzik tire. That bedika has to be performed during daytime, before shkia. It has to be performed before shkia, otherwise you cannot start your shemenikim. So step number two is essentially rechitza, which is either taking a shower, which is the best, or washing around Eisemachim. Whatever little washing you can do is okay. And then you do the Hefzik Tahara. The Hefzik Tahara is the most chamur of all the Bedikas. And even halachically, it is the most stringent, treated the most stringently of, of all the Bedikas. And it needs to be done properly. Uh, all Bedikas really need to be done with that. There's the Hefzik clause inserted and turned around 360. And the Hefzik Tahara, definitely very important that it be done that way. Now, I will point out, this is really for uh, the woman to hear, but it's good to know, is that uh, uh, no one should ever hurt themselves doing a badika. If you're hurting yourself doing a badika, then you're doing something wrong. Every person is shaped differently and designed differently, and there is different length within a person's body. So some people can, can put in their finger up till past their second knuckle, and it doesn't hurt them. And other people, they get past the first knuckle, and they're already hurting themselves. It has to do with what they're touching. If you hit the cervix, which is all the end of the the end of the, the rechem, um, you're going to cause yourself to bleed. You do it enough times, you're going to make a big problem. So that needs to be avoided at all costs. You can be yaitza. You're it's not should not be what you're trying for, but you can be yaitza bedike as long as you get past the first knuckle. If you got past the first knuckle, then it's a kosher bedika. And if you feel that pushing for, f- further than that it hurts, then don't do it. Now, you should try to get to the second knuckle, and often you can. And also, it depends, you know, where a person's holding in life, right? After a, a difficult um, delivery, you can't push that much. Or if a person just got married, a kala, a lot of times it's very tight, etc. So, th- this should be the rule of thumb. So, you do the hefsik tahara, the hefsik tahara obviously has to come out clean. It has to be done before shkia. So, you can do as many as you like. You can do 10, 20 until you get a good one. You can. Um, even though it might seem to you that really all you're doing is cleaning it out and then doing it, that's fine. You should give a little time between half six, but it doesn't have to be a lot. One, two, two minutes. If you're going to take like a shower or, uh, or, or douche or anything like that, actually insert water over there, then you need to wait longer. So you should wait at least 15 minutes after taking a shower before doing a half six tire. So if you're going to take a shower, make sure you have enough time to wait after the shower to do uh, the hefzik tire. But the Ebed, if you did it in less time than that, you did it in five minutes and in ten minutes, we probably will also accept that hefzik tire. But the Ebed. What's the function of the The function of the is to wash out any old blood. That's why you don't have to do it. It's, it's suggested, right. 
So, <clears throat> after the Hefzik Tyra, if the Hefzik Tyra is done, even a minute after Shkia, that's problematic. That's very questionable because, again, the Hefzik Tyra has to demonstrate that the Shiva Nikiyim is starting in its entirety. So, even if it's done a minute after Shkia, it's a problem. So, you have to, first of all, be very conscious of the time. And, uh, and if you do get it a minute or two past Shkia, then, again, we have to be in touch, and it'll depend on what happened previously in the day. Were you bleeding? Were you not? And what kind of Shasat Chak it is whether we're, we're going to be makel or not. There is a makam l'hakol, but it depends on the situation. Now, after Hefzik tired, there's a meich dachok. The meich dachok is a minig. Meich dachok is a minig. Important to understand that. It's not a halacha, it's a minig. Uh, it's a minig, which we should keep if we can. But as you've probably noticed, that Rabbanim are very, very easy to say, don't do a meich dachok, and that's the reason why, because it's a minig. So when do you do the meich dachok? Now, if you want to have any kind of benefit from the meich dachok, you have to do it correctly. For a mechdachi to be done correctly, it has to be put in before shkia. Once it's past shkia, there's no point. Don't do it. The whole point of a mechdachi is that it should be there from before shkia so that it encompasses the whole time of Ben Hashemashas. Once it's past that, then there's no point to do it anymore. So a mechdachi needs to be put in from before shkia. The good thing to do is, is to, when the mechdachi is put in, it should also, you should twist it around so that the mechdachi could serve as a bedika. The advantage of that is that in case there's some kind of shayla on your bedika, and the mechdachik is good, so the mechdachik can also serve as a hefsik. So that, you know, as, but that's also, again, you have to do it like a hefsik, which is not just put it in, but turn it. So it's ideal to when you put in the mechdachik, you should also turn it so that it can serve as a hefsik tahara as well. So this way, you know, you have that as a backup. And um, the mechdachik needs to stay there the whole duration of benashmashis. How long is benashmashis? It's a minig, so we can be very makel with that. So... 30 minutes tops, if it's uncomfortable, you could take it out after 25. But that's about how long you have to do it. Now, again, if there's any problems being caused by the Meich if it's a woman is extra sensitive, she has issues with bleeding, she has issues with, with uh, cuts, abrasions, we're going to say don't make the Meich If a woman is right after a, after a delivery, if, a, if, if a, a kala, also we're going to say no Meich Not only that, but if you've done uh, everything nicely, you have Siktaira and a Meich and then on day three, on day four, you become knocked out, right? You got a bad bedik and you have to start over again. I will also tell you don't do a Meich you do it one time, you did it, you're yaitz in a minute, you don't have to do it again if it, if it didn't come out good the first time. I mean, if you got messed up somewhere along the way. One other thing I want to point out about a hefzik tire, and especially important during the winter months when things are early or when you know you're going to be very busy, you can do, even though hefzik tire is supposed to be uh, done in the afternoon after Plaga Mincha, you should always do one, if you know that you're, it's going to be you know, difficult to do it later in the day, do one in the morning. It's not a but it's, it is fine for a bidyevet, meaning to say you're planning on doing it in the afternoon, but just in case you forget, then you can rely bidyevet on the one you did in the morning. So if, you're a, if, if you have any sad that in the afternoon it's not going might, to, you might forget, you might get disturbed, do it in the morning as a safety net to at least have that as your hefsi tire, and that's fine. You can do the chachil. If you know it's clear, yeah, then, then you have no reason to do that. And, yeah. and you could make problems uh, You don't want to hurt yourself, I guess, so you shouldn't. I mean, nothing should, no problem should happen <laughs> by doing that. That shouldn't make anything, generally should not make anything worse. Fine, so after you've had your five days, you have your hefzik tire, you have your mechdachuk, now you have shivanikim. Shivanikim is seven days, they have to be without hefzik, they have to be um, retzufim, and you do two bedikas a day. Two bedikas a day are meikra din. So that means you can't skip them, stamazai. It's not... It's a, it's a chiyuv, it's a mitzvah, mitzvah drabonon, and they need to be done. 
halachically, there are only two of those 14 bedikas that are actually ma'akav. So you have to do a hefzik You cannot start shavnikim without hefzik No way around that. Uh, even if a person has a maka. So every time they do a bedika, we know that the blood on the bedika is a maka. It doesn't make a difference. You have to get a clean bedika to be able to start shivanikim. If a person has a maka, really the only option they have is to go to a doctor and have, or a bedekas and have them do the bedika and avoid the area that's causing the bleeding. Because you have to get a clean bedika to be able to do, uh, to start your shivanikim. Likewise, you need um, a bedika, one bedika of day one, and one bedika of day seven, whichever one, doesn't make a difference, but one bedika of day one and one bedika of day seven in order to, in order to be able to go to the mikvah. So you need a total of three bedikas if you want to make it to the mikvah. One hefzik taira, one bedika of day one, and one bedika of day seven. Those, as long as you have those three, you can go to the mikvah. Now, chachili, you're supposed to do all of the other ones. Uh, but again, as you may have already experienced, is that if you're experiencing issues, specifically, particularly when you're experiencing issues with pain and with um, with bleeding, then uh, the Rav will tell you, skip those other bedikas and just do one and seven. Now generally, uh, a Rav will uh, suggest to do one in the middle. Not just one and seven, he'll do one, three and seven, one, four and seven, it doesn't really make a difference. The reason is, very simply, because very often I've had this, is that you, when you tell a person to do one and seven, so they're not doing a regular ritual. It means they're not doing bedik every day. So if they're not doing bedik every day, they do the half stick, they do day one, and then on day seven they forget because they're not in the practice of doing a every day. And if you forget on day seven, that's very, very bad. Because then, according to halacha, you have to start all over again. Because you can't have more than seven days in between your first bedikah and your last bedikah. And that's why we would suggest that if, if at all possible, do one bedikah in the middle, so this way, even if you can get on day seven, so you'll go to the mikvah on day eight. But at least it hasn't been seven days in between bedikahs. If there are seven days between bedikas, you have to start over the shiva nikim. So that's why a rav will, if and at all possible, if it's not a, that bad of a situation, he'll always suggest to try to do one in the middle as well to avoid that, uh, that, that happening. There are other times besides, um, besides when there's a makkah, there's other times when the, there's a hetarium to skip bedikas. If uh, you're having problems with spatting, and a lot of times, again, it can be because of birth control, it can be because of other reasons, but you're having this problem that you start off clean and you're constantly having, like on day three and day four, spatting, which keeps on messing up your Shiva Nikiyam. There's a term in those situations as well to skip bedikas. Obviously, you have to be in touch with the Rav, but you should know that that is an option. So that's, that's, some, that's something to be in touch with the Rav about. If you're having a, 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 a recurring issue of spatting, you should be in touch with the Rav to see whether you can skip bedikas to avoid that issue. And the rationale, should have been a gay, I can explain it time now, but there's a rationale behind it. Okay. <clears throat> when doing any bedikas, including the hefzik tara, you are allowed to use a lubricant. You are allowed to use a lubricant. Um, you should not apply the lubricant to the cloth. The lubricant should apply, be applied to the person's body and then wait a little bit so that it gets absorbed somewhat, and then you can do the bedika. But it shouldn't be applied to the actual cloth itself. Now, as far as, um, as, far as linen, white linen during Shiva Nikim, so that's something which was definitely minig in the past. I, uh, I spoke to my mother about it, and she said the reason why you can't really figure out if it's a minig or not is because there was no such thing as colored linen. The only thing there was was white linen. Colored linen is a more of a recent invention. Uh, he said, he said her, she said her when she was growing up and her, her parents and her grandparents, that's all they had was white linen. <laughs> it was just not a thing to have colored linen. 
So uh, it, it can be assumed that it was a minig to use white linen, and you can never know because, like I said, that's just that's all anybody ever used. Um, so some people hold that it's a very strong thing, and you should have to have white linen during shavinikim, and others say that no, as long as you have white underwear and you're wearing underwear, so then there's really no need for it because whatever dam will come out will be caught by the underwear. So each person can do as whatever their their minig is or whatever they feel their minig is. It's not it's not really a very strong thing that you have to you have to use white linen. Okay, let's move on to harchakis. What are there? There are, there are basically four categories of archakis as well. One category of archakis is touching and passing. Those are all the same concept because passing is also because it's a gzir to touching. Now, there is a derise of archakis. The derise of archakis is hugging and kissing and sleeping on the same bed. That's an iser derise. It's learned out of Pasukla Sikrivu. It possibly even has Allah of Yerigval Yaber. Of, of Arias, it has all the stringencies of Arias. So actually hugging, kissing, and uh, sleeping in the same bed is considered an Isidur Arias of Arachakis. Otherwise, everything else is an Isidur Abanan and it's Xeris. And it seems, if you learn through the Halachas well, it seems that for the most part, the Harachakis were designed toward, uh, aimed at the man, to keep the man away from the woman. There's less Harachakis the, that's where you find a lot of these differences between, in Archakas between men and women, like a woman's allowed to eat a man's shirayim, a man's not allowed to eat a woman's shirayim, and other such chilukim. The difference is because largely the Archakas are there so to keep the man out of the way. And the woman apparently needed less Archaka for, for, for her to be an issue. And simply put, it's because the man's job is to initiate in, uh, in intimacy, so as long as we keep him out of the picture, that should take care of the issue. So there are four kinds of categories of Archakis. There's touching and passing. Number two is eating. All the Archakis involved around eating. Number three are the Archakis that are in the bedrooms, in the bedroom with the beds and etc. And four is Archaka I like to call uh, mutual activities. Right? When you do things together, which things are okay and which things aren't okay. So let's start with the touching and passing. Right? So obviously, like I just said, hugging, kissing, and sharing a bed, that's an that's in Isidoraisa. Touching for other reasons is in Isser Durbanan. And here it's interesting is that if you're not married to the woman, it's more kuladik, right? So you're allowed to touch someone, Shaloi Bidara Chiba. A doctor who's a woman is allowed to touch you. Shaloi Bidara Chiba. You know, an examination can be done on you by a woman who's not your wife, who could be a Gili Erva to you. But an Eshesish, she can touch you because it's not Dara Chiba, but your wife can't. So it's one of the, the, the aspects of Rechakos that are more Chamer than other Arayas, but for Nida, you can't have any kind of touch, even if it's not their Chiba. So you can't touch. And you can't touch each other, obviously, and you can't touch each other's clothing. Right? So you can't touch clothing she's wearing, and she can't touch clothing you're wearing. Clothing that you're, what about if your clothing is touching clothing? And this is, comes up when you're sitting together on a, like a plane or on a bus, and you know, it's like kind of tight. So your clothing touches your clothing. So you're, you're supposed to try to avoid that. Pais can say that if it's because of the situation that it's so tight that your clothing touch your clothing, that's not nechlal and the harchakas. So you don't have to, you know, like <laughs> contort yourself to avoid that. But uh, otherwise, you should avoid your clothing touching your clothing. Now, passing is uh, either a gzera atu touching or it's considered touching through something else. So you're not allowed to pass things as well, and that includes passing anything, including a baby, as we know, has the same Isser of passing. When it comes to a baby, so we know when the baby gets older and the baby can like lean forward, you know, like, I don't know, one, one and a half, it's old enough to lean forward, so then you can do that, just hold out the baby, baby will lean forward. Another hatter is that, uh, something I've mentioned in the past, is like, uh, 
very often, you know, your wife wants to nurse in the middle of the night, so she wants you to get the baby. So you get the baby, you want to bring it to her. Oh, where do you put the baby? <laughs> you can't pass it to her. And you put it on the bed. That's kind of, gets, depending how big your bed is, it can be a little scary. So you actually are allowed to put the baby on her. That's not called handing it to her. You can place the baby on her, and then she takes the baby. And likewise, you can take the baby off her. So for that purpose, that's not called passing. So you could put the baby on her and take the baby off her. But otherwise, you can't, uh, you can't pass the baby. And like all her chakas, really what's important to do is to be chacham of bereishai, to plan ahead, to be able to avoid embarrassing situations. So if you see that you're going to be in a situation where you're going to have to pass the baby and it's going to become very obvious and embarrassing, so, so, so position yourself, if you can, position yourself in a way that it won't be so obvious have the car seat in between you and constantly put the baby in and out of the car seat so it shouldn't be so obvious. Don't stand next to each other if you don't have to so they're always, you can always pass for, through someone else. You know, like, by Havdalah, and you're, if you're Anita and there's a lot of people around by Havdalah, don't stand right next to your wife, you know, so that the summon will be, it'll be very obvious that you're not passing into your wife. Stand on the other side. If you have a little bit of foresight, you can avoid a lot of embarrassment. And uh, it's important to do that. Sometimes as a, as a man, it doesn't like, bother us so much, but it does tend to bother our wives a lot more. So it's, it's important to, to be sensitive to that. There is not a sensitivity. Should there be? Should, there definitely should, should be. be. Yeah, you should, you, you should definitely try to cover it up as much as possible. That, that's serious. Yeah, it is the correct approach. Uh, the question is just how, um, you know, OCD you have to be about it. You know? So you do your best. Okay. Um, now, there is one kind of passing which is a little bit more chomer than other kinds of passing. Typically, passing, if you put it down and she picks it up, that's not a problem. The one thing where it's a little bit more chomer is with wine. And the reason why it's more chomer with wine is because wine, the problem is not passing. The problem is that there's a certain kind of chiba of sending. Now, now just to give you an idea what the real halacha is, it's called sending her kaisal bracha. That's the iser. And to give you a feeling of what it probably is, is like when you go to a bris and you bring home something from the bris for your wife. That's a certain chiba, right? That you bring home something, it's a school, you bring it home for your wife. That, that's what it means when Chazal Asr passing a kaisal bracha, that's exactly what it was. It was a school for a woman to drink from the kaisal bracha. It was a school for a lot of things. So that's, that's where the, the, the harchaka came from. Um, there are some paiskim that hold that a taka doesn't apply to typical passing wine. But the majority of Paiskim hold that it does. So we, we include all, all passing of wine in that achaka, and so you can't send wine to your wife. So that makes it a little bit uncomfortable during Kiddush, where you make Kiddush and then you have to hand it to your wife. So this is a harchaka that even if you put it down, it's a problem that you're passing it to her. Now, so it's important to understand like this. If you're a guest by someone, and the, the Baalabais is making Kiddush, and he pours it out in little cups, and he says, here, give this to your wife. So he is sending it to your wife. Okay, so that's not a problem. So I mean, don't hand it to her, but you can put it down in front of her because you're not giving it to her. He is sending it to her. So if you're by your in-laws and the, the, whoever made Kiddush is saying, okay, give this to your wife, that's not a problem. That is not a problem. Now, if you're making Kiddush, so then you can't say, okay, pass this to mommy or pass this to my wife, that it would, would be an issue. So there, what you do is you, you don't say that. And then you pour out your little cups and hopefully they'll understand, you know, to pass to your wife and you don't have to say anything. And then that's okay. As long as you don't, haven't designated one of those cups that, okay, pass this to my wife, then that's fine. Then you can pour them all out. A lot of times what, what, I, what, what I do when it's in a situation where it'll be obvious, 
uh, is that I, I position my Kiddush cup in a way that when I put down the Kiddush cup, it's already in front of my wife. So really all I'm doing is putting it down. So I made Kiddush, I put the bottom play, plate a little further away from myself. So I'm, I, even though technically all I'm doing is putting it down, it's already close enough that she can take it from there without it being obvious. So when it comes to Kiddush, you have to, again, a little be, be a little bit more creative to avoid uh, the, that issue of sending a Kaisal Bracha. The last thing that comes up with touching and uh, passing is um, that when, when you want to do something together, like uh, carry something together, you want to carry a stroller together or, or, or anything like that. So that's a question whether is that called, you're not quite doing any of those things. You're not touching, you're not passing, you're just carrying something together. So interesting uh, anecdote with that is that my... Uh, Father-in-law asked this to Rav Gusman. The Tzalar Gusman was a dying in Vilna and became Rosh Hashiva after the war. And uh, he said that in Vilna we used to get this question kind of often because people had businesses together. They ran stores. So they constantly had to move merchandise. So the husband and wife, they ran the store together. They always needed to be able to help each other moving merchandise. He said that then in Vilna the way the Paskin was is that if it's something very heavy that truly needs two people, so then it's not chiba and you're not doing it because of chiv, it simply needs two people. But if it's something which is not so heavy, uh, it's light, so then you're just doing it to be helpful, right? You're doing it to be kind to your wife, so then that is their chiva, so that's what, you, that's what should be avoided. That's the psaki you gave, so that can be applied. And specifically, I think, uh, just for safety purposes, when it comes to a stroller and you have to carry it up steps and you start carrying it yourself up steps, that can be kind of dangerous. I've seen people fall. So it's uh, worth it to be makel and you, know, you can do it together with your wife. Carry the stroller up the steps. That's, that, that would be allowed. Okay, let's go to the harchakas regarding eating. So when you're eating um, alone, you and your wife on a table, it requires a hacker. Um, now, alone doesn't mean there's no one else in the room, right? So if you're in a restaurant... You need a hacker as well. It means that you're alone on your table. Whenever you're alone on your table, regardless of who's in the room, it requires a hacker. Now, if there's other people eating with you, then you don't require a hacker. What does it mean, other people eating with you? They're participating in the meal. What age? So a baby in a high chair doesn't qualify. But once the child's a little older and is actually eating, sitting by the table and eating, so then, then you don't need a hacker anymore. Once there's other people on the table, you don't need a hacker. What is a hacker? A hacker is anything that's unusual on the table um, and you know, it has a little bit of a height to it. Um, nowadays, I don't know if, if, if putting your cell phone on the table is a hacker anymore. <laughs> I think it's become a permanent fixture on the table, unfortunately. So uh, unless you're but not to have your cell phone on the table during supper, which is a thing, maybe I might want to consider that. Uh, otherwise, I don't know, I'm not sure anymore if it could be considered a hacker. But you can put something else there, right? So you can put your keys there, or you put something else which isn't typically there, and it has some height to it. You can also take something which is on the table, typically, let's say, like uh, um, something that holds um, napkins, and usually it's in the middle, and you move it over to be in between you and your wife, where it's not in its normal position, that also works. All those things could be a hacker. Another hacker also, Chazal says, is that you can switch seats. If you usually sit in one seat and she usually sits in another seat, I haven't found that hacker to be a very practical one because normally a woman chooses her seat based on the easiest access to the kitchen. So it's usually there's a reason she sit where she's sitting where she sits. Also, once your kids get older, that becomes very obvious. So that's also not such, a, such an option. But that's also a good hacker. So if you want to switch your typical seats, that will count. Yeah. It doesn't have to be directly in between, but it has to be kind of in between. Uh, doesn't that, you don't have to be able to you know, draw a line, but it, it has to look like it's in between. Okay. 
now that's that's one halacha. One halacha is that when you're eating together, you need a hacker. Another halacha regarding eating is uh, serving. So your wife can't serve you directly. So when she's serving you, she can either serve you with her left hand, if she's a righty, or her right hand, if she's a lefty. Or what she could do is not put it down directly in front of you. So if she's, a, so she's serving you a plate that's made, don't put down the plate directly in front of you. Put it a little bit ahead of you, or, you know, to the side of you, and then that's, that's allowed. Um, that also, it can be uncomfortable. Again, when you're a guest and you know, she's bringing you the food, so it can be uncomfortable. The best way is if you can switch hands. The, the tricky thing about switching hands is that when you're holding a pot in one hand and a plate in the other hand, which hand... Is how do you switch that? In other words, you're trying to, or, or I mean, more normally it's like this: you have the spoon in one hand and the pot in the other hand, and then you're putting it onto the plate, right? So, which is the right hand? Which is the left hand? <laughs> I don't have, I, I don't know. Not sure what would be the, how to switch it over there. That it would be a hacker. I don't know if switching it would even help if you're using both hands. So, I don't, then the what you would have to do is move it over. Another another uh, halacha that applies to eating is shirayim. Shirayim is whenever she has eaten something, you can't eat. Her, her leftovers. Shirayim refers to both food, you know, solids, and to drinks. With drinks, there's a kula, you can change cups. So if she drank from something, you can pour it into another cup, and then it's fine. With her, solid foods, that doesn't work necessarily. Because uh, chicken on one plate and chicken on another plate, you haven't changed anything about it for that to work. So if she ate from a ch- uh, piece of chicken and then she put it on another plate, that doesn't help. Something which is kind of in between a solid and a liquid, which means that it, it you know, like uh, rice or anything that needs uh, something to hold its form, it doesn't have like a solid form like chicken, there are price that say that you, there, there you could be makele by changing, changing the plate. Uh, she is allowed to eat your shirayim. So there's also one of the differences between men and women. You can't eat her shirayim, but she could eat your shirayim. What if you have a water bottle that your entire family is sharing? The kids are also sharing it. And- so there the halacha is, as long as someone else drank in between you and your wife, so then that's okay. So that's always true. All kinds of shirayim. So if someone eats from it in between you and your wife, then you taka, that's okay. Another thing with shirayim is, is that if you don't know that it's your wife's shirayim, right? let's say she ate it and cut it off and put it in the fridge, then that's also not a problem. She doesn't have to tell you. As long as you don't know that it's shirayim, that's allowed. Um, shearing is a big shiloh. That's, that really, Ramosha came up with that particular hachaka. It's not really in Shulchan Aruch. Shearing means like this. It's not shirayim. Shirayim is when I eat and I give you the leftovers. What about if... I didn't eat yet. We have a Danish. I'm going to split it in half. You'll take half and I'll take half. That's shearing. Right? So shearing is not shirayim. I haven't eaten yet. We're just going to take half and half. Ramesha held that that's a harchaka as well. Ramesha held you have to, they can't do that either. And the way he categorized that is that if you're eating something that's intended for one person, you know, like a snack bag, or something which is designed for one person eating, so then you, sharing it would be a harchaka. But anything that's designed for more people, you can, uh, you know, that, 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 that's fine, that you, can, that you can split. So, okay, so this is, uh, Ramesha came up with this. It's good to be, you, to be machmer if you can. Sometimes it's, Hard to be macro on that, you're like you're on a trip and all you have is a little snack bag, so uh, it's kind of you know uncomfortable. So you you know this is makom lahakol, yeah. So then yeah, right as long as, long as it's, I understand, but if it's if it's not like looked at as sharing, it's just you know if you wouldn't have eaten it anyway, so then you don't have this harakol. Now, what, eating from the same eating from the same container is its own kind of problem with uh, with food. So you can't shear a plate and eat from the same plate. So the, uh, typically, that's not so relevant. But it's more relevant when you're eating out of a bag of popcorn. So that's an issue. You can't eat out of the same kaara. So what you need to do is then put it down in front on, in front of you. So it's, again, it gets a little tricky when you're in the car. You're sharing a bag of popcorn. 
So it's a little hard to do. You put it down in your lap. It goes all over the place. But that's something you have to be made some life to. You can't shear something. Uh, you can't eat out of the same container. Okay. Uh, I think we're going to have to stop here. Oh, we got, got, got it more than halfway through. <laughs> but, uh,